Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center. Episode 89, The Heroes Behind the Heroes, Part 2. I'm Pat Ryan, and I'm pleased you've joined us to pick up on the story of the rescue of an artifact of American history, the audio recordings of NASA's Mission Control Center during Apollo 11, the first landing of men on the moon. In Part 1, we introduce the story of a professor from the University of Texas at Dallas who studies speech processing and language technology and wants to move the field beyond a smartphone being able to understand simple questions. In 2012, he wanted to study language as used by a large group of people interacting with one another on a common project or during an emergency. And he found out that NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston had recordings of the conversations of the mission control team during the Apollo missions. That would be perfect for his research, and he got a grant from the National Science Foundation to fund the work. But when he got to Houston, he discovered some seemingly impenetrable obstacles to his plan. And that's where we start part two of The Heroes Behind the Heroes. Here we go. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark, mission start. T-zero, launch commit by circuit. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. NASA's Apollo program was created to achieve an outrageous goal, the one set by President John Kennedy in 1961, to land men on the moon by the end of that decade and return them safely to the Earth. The agency's scientists and engineers not only had to develop the rockets and the spaceships that would execute the missions, but the systems on the ground that would support those flights, and that included the development of a mission control center where experts could monitor the systems on a spacecraft and collaborate to resolve any issues that arose. The conversations among the mission control team members during Apollo 11 and the other missions were recorded, 30 separate channels of them simultaneously, on big reels of one-inch-wide audio tape. And then the tapes were pretty much forgotten about for more than 40 years, until John Hansen asked if he could borrow them. John Hansen is a professor at the University of Texas at Dallas who studies speech processing and communications and biomedical engineering, and he's a leader in the field of speech recognition technology. He wanted to use those tapes for his study of the speech of groups of people working collaboratively, and he won a federal grant to fund the work. When he approached NASA with his proposal, he got a big surprise. Right after we got the grant, we came down to NASA and uh, I, I naively said, well, can you show us where you have the audio? And uh, Greg Weissman pointed us to some boxes of tapes and I said, uh, we're in trouble here because we thought this was all digitized. And uh, so that was 2013 or so. And at that point, we started the process of figuring out how do we actually go about digitizing these things. So that was an engineering problem by itself. Well, and it, but even before that, I guess at some point you've got NASA who somebody high up the food chain who says, yes, we'll be happy to share this with you. Well, so we talked actually with several folks. There's one colleague of mine at the University of Maryland who was also involved on this project. And he's kind of a NASA, or at least Apollo, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a closet, a closet uh, trivia expert on this, and you know he kept telling me, "Well, John, it's probably going to take you a year to two years to get permission from NASA to actually go in and digitize this stuff." And so we were, actually, I was really nervous because we got the proposal, and I thought, "Well, if we're going to have to have to go through a lot of bureaucratic processes here, we weren't going to be able to actually advance the the engineering, the algorithms, and so forth." Uh, but I will say we had the best support that we could ever possibly hope to imagine uh, here with NASA. Uh, Greg Weissman just opened the door and really gave us support that we could never imagine would have been uh, so helpful in developing this process because it wouldn't have happened without that infrastructure here at NASA. My name is Greg Wiseman. I'm an audio engineer here at the Johnson Space Center uh, supporting the Public Affairs Office. 
I work in multimedia production and live television for dynamic broadcast coverage. Um, you've worked here for 15 years, 20 years? I worked here since February of 1999. Um, seen a lot of weird stuff come through here in that time. I have. Uh, I started working around the beginning of the International Space Station. Um, I worked uh, through um, a big part of the shuttle program. Um, I was here during the, the Columbia accident and then worked through return to flight and now building towards Orion and uh, commercial crew. How did you first become aware of John Hansen and his uh, project dealing with the Apollo 11 mission control uh, tape recordings? Hansen had the project with the National Science Foundation and he had reached out to the JSC History Program um, who eventually directed him to our department. And I think if I remember right, Hansen had seen um, an article about our department in Mix Magazine. They had done a short story about some of the things that we do here in the audio control room. And they had included a picture of some of my colleagues standing in front of the Soundscriber. So he became aware of who we were and, and he reached out, made contact with my supervisor, John Stoll, who then uh, handed the project over to me. When you met with Hansen then, what, what was your sense of what he was after? So he shared with me his proposal he had submitted to the NSF and so I had a basic understanding of the academic research that he was pursuing with the project, uh, which was interesting. But what really interested me was to was that he had funding uh, that he was willing to apply towards solving some of the problems we had uh, and being able to do this. Uh, part of that was getting the soundscriber back in working order. Now let me stop you there and and. Let's do a little clarification. You've mentioned Soundscriber, and we hear the word Soundscriber in this story before. Can you describe, characterize, explain that machine? What What is the Soundscriber? The Soundscriber is an analog audio tape machine. Uh, it plays back one inch, 30 track tape. Um, it has two heads for playback, uh, one channel each head. Uh, originally, they did have a dedicated head for just reading iRig time codes, so that you could um, you could queue up a particular section of, of tape that you needed based on a time frame. Um, but the other two playback heads were they sat on a little movable block, and the way that you would select which track that you wanted to listen to is you would turn this little crank, and it would physically move the head up or down the width of the tape to line the head up over the track, and it had a little number counter. Uh, that would tell you which track you were on approximately. I mean, it wasn't always super precise. Um, so you dial up which track you wanted, you'd hit play, you'd wait to hear some audio, and then you might need to tweak the crank a little to better position the head over the tape track. So the Soundscriber machine was a playback unit, not the, not the didn't record these tapes. Right, so the way that these were used back in the 60s and early 70s, it was part of a larger system. They had two 30-track recorders that were recording 24-7, at least during a mission, recording 60 discrete channels of audio. And they had a couple of units right underneath them that um, they would kick in once the top one was near the end of its tape. So it would get near the end of the tape, the, the bottom one would kick in, and this allowed for uh, uninterrupted recordings. Um, so they would roll off that tape, then they would put it on a shelf, and then later on, if somebody wanted to request a copy of a particular channel of audio in a particular time frame, then they would, uh, the operator would take that tape over to the Soundscriber, they would load it up, they could cue it up to whatever time that they were looking for, and then they could make a copy. They could roll that off probably onto quarter-inch tape. Um, this is... To call it a playback, call it a tape recorder that plays back audio is doesn't really give you the sense of what this enormous machine is. The Soundscriber is huge. Um, it's this pale green painted monster. Um, I mean, it would be tricky to fit this thing in the back of a pickup truck. It's about four and a, four and a half feet tall, another four feet wide, and maybe two and a half feet deep. Very heavy. Um, it's certainly not a compact piece of equipment. 
that's the machine. You also had earlier made reference to the tapes as if you're really aware that these old recordings exist and have worked with them before. Uh, we have a half dozen of these 30-track tapes um, in our collection from other missions such as Gemini and we have a few from Apollo Soyuz as well. Uh, back when I started in 1999, that was one of my first projects was to try to, was to try and digitize these tapes. Um, back in 99, super cheap hard drive space wasn't a thing yet, so we were gonna, going to archive these onto digital data tapes, um, which was our common archive format back then. Um, but I really didn't have a lot of success because the Soundscriber just wasn't fully functional at that point. I would load up a 15-hour tape when I left at the end of the day, intending for it to roll all night into our digital archive system. But when I would come in in the morning, the tape would be stuck about halfway through. Um, there just wasn't enough friction left on the pinch roller to pull the tape across the head. So uh, that was a problem. Wiseman's problems with the Soundscriber ended up being mentioned in an engineering periodical. And that's where it caught the eye of Larry Vroman, who had worked on these very machines at the Johnson Space Center in the late 1970s and early 80s. I tripped over an article in Mix Magazine. It's a professional audio magazine, professional musician audio magazine. Really more about studio support personnel. And uh, I tripped over an article in there about Greg talking they had interviewed Greg about his project. And back at that time, he was struggling with, for example, the pitch roller. Wait a minute, there's that phrase again. He was struggling with the what? Pitch roller. I feel compelled to pause here. What is a pinch roller, and why does it matter? Well, the rubber is a compliant, tacky surface. And the, the capstan, the metal machined capstan is not. So the capstan is rotated at a speed that the surface contact with the tape achieves the desired tape speed. And then the pinch roller simply ensures intimate contact, and the pinch roller actually does the pulling of the tape. And so if anybody has got or remembers a tape recorder, there's a, a black rubber roller that comes down against that slender metal silver metal thing the capstan that comes out and when the two come together that's the actual force that pulls the yes. tape through yes that pulls the tape through and then both both reels which have motors behind them uh, apply back tension so that the tape is is pulled across the heads with relatively even tension and that's in both the case of a, when a recording is made and when it's played back. Yes, the actual tape movement in those two instances should be identical. And and you want that so that it sounds like in the playback, it sounds like what it did when it yeah, happened. Yeah, you want a you want a, an accurate reproduction of what was recorded. And hence the why having a pinch roller and the machines, the motors that turn those things that were in good shape and worked as they were supposed to was critical in order to get the playback. Absolutely. Okay, that's what a pinch roller is. And now, on with the countdown. I emailed him. I, I just did some research and emailed him. And I, it occurred to me that I need to email him in such a way that I would get his attention so he wouldn't think I was just anybody. And uh, basically I said that, you know, if that thing hasn't been thoroughly cleaned, it's still got my fingerprints on it. Wow. And uh, I also offered my services uh, to help uh, work on the machine because, uh, in fact, I was, in fact, at one time responsible for that particular machine. So, so that's how it got started. I found an article in Mixed Magazine about his project. Uh, tell me tell me how you, about your involvement then. Tell me from that point, what, did, uh, what were you doing? Well, I, I contacted uh, Greg about what he needed to... Uh, uh, if he needed help, and he, he said he did, because he, he didn't have the training and the uh, experience to do that, and, and, I, and I do. So we arranged a trip for me to come to Houston, take a look and analyze and evaluate the machine. And it was pretty much the way I envisioned that it needed a, a, a remanufactured pinch roller. And it had a couple other minor issues that we worked through, and we swapped some parts but from the old, the two. He had two machines, 
uh, two of these Soundscriber playback machines. Two of the decks. Right. Um, I had never seen the second one because in operation, when it was mounted on the second floor uh, of the Mission Control Center, it was in its own cabinet, and I had, and it always worked. And never, and I don't recall ever fixing anything on it, and it uh, uh, never needed any service. So I've never seen the second machine. Turns out it's not fully complete. I don't know if they. Had, if, if it had ever been in service, maybe in the early days, maybe it was. But uh, we, in fact, swapped a few parts back and forth between the two machines and got the, the one we want to work uh, actually working once we replaced the pinch roller. The pinch roller is essentially just a little rubber wheel. And uh, this one, the rubber over years had broken down. It had become slick and it couldn't... Um, you kind of create, it depend on that the tackiness of the rubber to, to get the right grip on the tape so that it can pull it across the heads. And this one uh, couldn't do it anymore. So uh, Larry is an analog tape enthusiast. He has a lot of experience and contacts who have expertise. And he couldn't replace the rubber, but he had a friend that could. So we disassembled the pinch roller from the Soundscriber and sent it off to his friend in Michigan, a guy named Terry Witt. And it was Terry who replaced the old rubber with newly vulcanized rubber. And then he had it machined down uh, to just the right uh, size for the Soundscriber. And once we got it back, we could tell there was a big difference. It was tacky. Um, and when once we got it back installed, it could easily maintain the proper friction to pull the tape across the head. Then we sort of tore down some of the machine, um, lubricated any kind of moving parts. Um, I think we replaced a belt, which we were able to do that by cannibalizing uh, from another broke down machine that we had. Um, I think we also swapped out one of the supply reel motors. Um, and then Larry just kind of went over the machine, making little adjustments, tightening screws, uh, and just getting it back into full working order. How long did it take to get it back into operating condition? Um, I think it, it took about three days. I think Larry visited three times. Um, he made pretty short work of it because he knew what he was doing. He worked on these machines for years, so he was able to quickly diagnose problems and knew what to do to get it functioning again. And luckily, we didn't have any major part breakdowns. Um, if we had, getting replacement parts would have been really difficult um, to, or next to impossible. Uh, the few things that we did need, we were able to scavenge off the other Soundscriber that we that we had that was basically just pieces in a box. Did you ever think of contacting the manufacturer and say, hey, help us out? Uh, based on some internet research, it looked like to me that the Soundscriber was discontinued in the late 70s, so parts would have been hard to come by. Um, and uh, Dr. Hansen had done some research on his end, and from what he could tell, we may have one of the only uh, machines left in existence. So we figured we were going to be on our own. So, the Soundscriber is now operating. It's playing back tapes, although it is doing that one channel of audio at a time. And there are still some hurdles up ahead. But Wiseman was jazzed about the situation in which he found himself. This was something that I had wanted to do back in 1999. Uh, this was one of my early projects. So finding someone who had some funding and could help solve some of these problems, yeah, I mean, it, it got me really excited because I'd been sitting on this project for a while. So what was your first step? How did you go about figuring out how to refurbish the machine? So once we knew that this was something that we were going to take on, after some initial meetings with Dr. Hansen, we discussed some of the challenges that we were facing, and one of which was the playback head. As it was, the Soundscriber can only play back two channels at a time. Um, the other problem was getting the actual Apollo tapes uh, on hand, um, because that mission was specifically identified in his NSF grant. We didn't have those tapes, NARA did, and the process for requesting those tapes involves pouring through handwritten transfer documents from the late 70s that have been scanned and stored electronically. And even if you're able to narrow it down and find a document that might describe the correct box that these tapes would have been stored in, 
It was a little cryptic because the transfer document will just say something like historical audio tapes, but nothing as to what's on the tapes or even what format of tape. I mean, I was looking for one inch 30 tracks specifically. Um, I didn't want quarter inch. I mean, that's that's uh, that wouldn't have helped me. So I was looking for anything that was identified in that way. Um, but yeah, it was very much like a needle in a haystack. Uh, Dan Rooney at NARA was able to give a big assist in helping us find um, specifically what we were looking for. But in any event, uh, that was my first action item. I assume that that worked fine. National Archives said, sure, we'd be happy. And they delivered. What kind of condition were these tapes in when they're you know, 45 plus years old? Yeah, actually, surprisingly, they were in great condition, uh, and we were able to play them right away, which isn't always the case with older tapes. Um, at some point in the mid-70s, the tape manufacturers changed the formulation that they used for making tape, and they began, began using a different kind of glue. And the glue is what binds the magnetic oxide to the physical plastic tape, and over time, that binder breaks down, and so whenever you load up one of these older tapes and you try to play it back, it'll start shedding that magnetic oxide and the tape will start to stick inside the machine. It won't pull smoothly across the heads. Uh, we've actually got a lot of quarter inch tape that suffers from that. So the way to fix it is to bake them. Excuse me, bake them? Yeah, uh, literally we throw it in a special little oven and we bake them at around 135 degrees. And that sort of reactivates that binder and reforms that bond uh, between the magnetic oxide and the tape so that you can play the tape back. Um, it's not a permanent fix, but it's good enough so that you can, you can at least get the tape to play back one more time and uh, digitize it. And it would seem to me that that would have been a concern too. Even though the tapes were in good shape, they're still pretty old and you don't want to have to risk playing them more times than you would need to. Absolutely. They, they are in good condition, um, but they're still 40 plus years old. So we really just wanted to play these back once to digitize them. And to, to, to remind myself, we're talking about, you're talking about playing the back once so that we can get everything off of them. But there's 30 tracks of audio on that tape. In order to get all 30 tracks, you would have to have a a head that can read 30 different tracks all at one time. And you didn't have that. Right, the Soundscriber wasn't designed to play back more than two channels at a time. So we would have had to play back each tape 15 times to capture all 30 tracks. And we didn't want to put that kind of stress on the tapes. So we had to figure out a way to digitize all 30 tracks in one pass. And so once we got, uh, we knew the tapes were there, I had one of my students, we came down for, for about a four-day, five-day type week to, uh, to do some testing. We thought, well, let's put the tapes onto uh, the playback system called Soundscriber, and let's see what we can kind of get out of this. And uh, the playback system, actually, we, again, were just expecting that you would play this back and there's 30 tracks, so you would be able to get all 30 tracks off at once. Um, but that was not the case. You could only get one audio track at a time. And this was a challenge for us because one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that all 30 tracks were digitized at the same time. It was very important to synchronize all of those tracks so this way we could start to look across the tracks at the same instant of time. Let me stop you for a second. The the tapes, when we're talking about physical audio tapes that were recorded in 1969, in the case of Apollo 11, and there are 30 tracks, there are 30 different sources being recorded at the same time, actually recorded at the same time, so they're already synced up in, in time because they were recorded that way. Exactly, that's correct. And so what were the 30 sources? Did you know? Were they always the same? No, so interestingly enough, uh, NASA, when they recorded this, they had two historical recorders. They call it HR1, HR2, historical recorder one, historical recorder two. For each of these two recorders, there's an upper and a lower recorder or a tape system, right? And the reason for that is, you know, if you're kind of recording on one historical recorder, you can't tell everyone, hey, stop, we got to switch the tapes right now. <laughs> so they have two tapes, and so they'll record on the lower 
uh, system. And then when the tape is starting to run out, they'll start running tape on the other one. So there's, there's a good overlap there. Um, the two recorders, actually, there's some overlap in them, but there's some differences. Um, in one of the historical recorders, there's, I think, three uh, Department of Defense channels. And in the other one, there's about five Department of Defense channels, Air Force or, 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 or other. So altogether, maybe more than 30 channels. Yeah, or actually, collectively, you could look. I mean, there could be as many as 60 channels uh, of recording. Of, but of, not so in this case. Now, and the, well, so the tapes, all, each tape actually only has 30 tracks. Of those 30 tracks, track one is called IRIG. It's the time code. So that's the actual time code. Uh, that tells you, you know, for a mission elapsed time, exactly when things are happening. If you try listening to track one, it sounds like a squirrel is running around right. uh, in your attic or something like this. It doesn't have any speech in there. So there's really 29 tracks of audio. And did you know what those 29 sources were? Yeah. Uh, we, how, how would you characterize that? Yeah, so the thing that helped us a lot was because NASA is very, very good in documentation. And one of the things they <laughs> had is on every tape, you know, there was a, a decal or, or a handwritten, you know, uh, sticker that basically said when this tape started, when it stopped. Uh, and then on the actual box, there's something called a heat sheet. It actually lists all the tracks and it tells what is the code for each of those tracks and it tells you what position uh, the recording was done. So the position typically means the type of handset, whether it's a head-mounted handset or uh, kind of a telephone-type handset. Um, to be honest, I don't know all of the positions of every handset. But well, What I'm trying to get at, I, I think, is, is did you know that – was it, for example – the crew on the moon talking to Earth on one channel? Was it the flight director talking to, was it the recording of the flight loop on the flight director's loop on another channel? Or was it people talking to each other in that control room? Or people talking to people in other rooms? So, so each track basically is basically, you think of it as a loop, right? Now, there's typically one person that I'll, I'll say it this way, that owns that loop, right? So there could be, for example, there's one track that's PAO, Public Affairs Office. This is DOD PAO. Hi, this is Bill O'Donnell over in the News Center. The name of the artist that's on the carry is uh, Jameson. Is that not right? I have to check that, sir. I believe you're right, though. Uh, would you check it and give me a And so that person owns that loop. And so, at least the way I say it, I don't even say own it, but, but so you'll have other audio that's there. Uh, another one is EECOM. EECOM, fine. Still fine. If we don't dump any water at all, uh, would we be over 100% by entry? That firm flight, we hit a 185 on. EECOM, uh, there's communication that's going on on that loop. But while the communication is going on in that loop, there's typically other pieces that are folded into that loop. So you might have, for example, air to ground that's actually folded in there. All right, copy all that, Neil. And we got a entry pad if you're ready to copy over. Houston, Apollo 11 or Right, Buzz. It's the entry pad, uh, MPL. That means that when you're talking to someone at EECOM, you're communicating with other people there, but you can also hear uh, Capsule Communicator Capcom talking to the astronauts. They can't hear you, but you can hear them. And so that's important because there may be something going on that you have to pay attention to. Now, that's important for the loop. It's really, really difficult for the speech technology because if you're attempting to try and do speech recognition and you've got Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Collins in the background talking to uh, the flight... Uh, to the Capcom. To Capcom. Then uh, you got to figure out, you know, who is talking to who and where the things are. Now, fortunately, the air to ground is typically at a lower volume than the primary speakers in that loop. And so for, for that reason, we tend to do a better job uh, of getting just that core speech. So I understand then the sources, the 29 sources, uh, which might have been on either one of the two machines, yeah. are the loops that are owned by the operators at the different positions in the flight control room. That's correct. Is there a conversation involved? So so that would be, to use your example, the public affairs officer 
could be talking to other public affairs people That's correct, in yeah. their background, what they call the back room. The same thing is going on at, from each of the other positions, and you're recording each one of all of those positions. They're all being recorded, yes. And they all may have the air-to-ground on top of them. That's they correct. may all have the flight director loop on top of them. That's correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a lot going on. I, I will say that when, I, when we first played some of the first tapes, what kind of surprised me, I th we picked up, I thought, one that was probably PAO. Um, and so I was, a little, I was a young kid at the time, but we actually picked up ABC, NBC, or CBS uh, news feed on, the, on these tapes. I didn't think that you would actually have heard that. And I heard some commercials that I remembered from 1969 <laughs> Yeah, there, and, and I thought, well, this was Breakfast kind of cereals, yeah, yeah, exactly. Dishwasher um, soap, uh, smoking cigarettes. You yeah. actually had advertisements for that. Yeah, I'd walk a mile for a camel. If you don't buy RCA, you may be buying an obsolete color TV. but the office is my duty. Featuring special savings on specially equipped Fury, Valiant, Barracuda, and Belvedere models. When you're out of Schlitz, you're out of beer. Um, well, I, as a as a PAO commentator, I'll tell you that the audio from uh, news channels is among the different loops that people in there can listen to. So that would explain why that why they were there. Okay. Uh, not making your surprise at hearing it or finding it any any better. So the, the thirty tracks on each of these tapes are the conversations that are going on within the flight control room as well as conversations involving flight controllers and other people who are in different rooms. Yeah, backroom supports that. All yes. of that is yeah. going on at the same time. Yep. And you're finding that these reels of audio tape that have 30 tracks on them is being presented to you as, okay, you wanted it, here it is. Yeah, we that's, got that's, yeah, so these were all analog tapes and we had to figure out a way to digitize them. Once we digitized them, then we had to develop technologies that we could use to try and do what we call diarization. So, I won't cover that just yet, but we can Yeah, talk because about I, I I want to get you to explain to to say well, we figured out a way to digitize them and you know, story's over. Yeah. But there was a lot more to it than that. Yeah, the, the digitizing process was something that uh, I have to say was an unexpected challenge because when that came up, the fear I had was there's only one Soundscriber system that I know of, and it sits in one building, number two, here at NASA. And we didn't know of another one that existed. And so I had contacts and friends that worked in other audio uh, spaces. The CIA actually maintains a library of all types of recording and storage systems that have existed uh, from the beginning of st storage recording. Because so, of course they do. Yeah, well, yeah. And so yeah. I actually contacted their archive to see if they had a Soundscriber system. My thought was, well, if they had a Soundscriber system, could we rent it, borrow it, or somehow get it to University of Texas at Dallas to see if we could use that to digitize them, you know, in, in, on our space? Uh, CIA doesn't have one. Uh, and so I did do a little research on Soundscriber. Soundscriber actually was an audio logging system, a company that basically did audio logging. And it was primarily for uh, police and for emergency, like, calling 911, uh, rescue squad, and so forth, in the 60s. Um, but uh, tapes were expensive at that time, so when it got recorded, uh, they would recycle and reuse those tapes over and over again. So it was basically a way to do a logging of the audio. Uh, NASA used it, obviously, for different purposes. It was to kind of obviously to catch the, capture the audio for Apollo. Um, but what kind of, you know, really changed my perspective of things is when when I went to uh, use the Soundscriber the first time and I said well how do you switch between tracks and uh, Greg said well you have this little uh, handle and you rotate this little wheel and what the wheel does is it manually moves the record the read head uh, up and down against the tape so you know, and when you rotate it, a little uh, counter actually tells you which track the head is supposed to be on, and it mechanically changes from track two to three to four. 
And so you thought, okay, uh, this was built in 1967, 68. Um, so what are the challenges here? Well, are the motors that actually move these tapes, are they the original ones from the 1960s? What about the actual reed head? Is that from the 1960s? There's a little piece of rubber, like a wheel, that's supposed to put friction, uh, tension the on the tape. Roller. Yeah, pinch roller. And uh, was that the original one? Because rubber oxidizes over here. So these are small little things where, you know, if you are thinking you're just going to have to develop speech technology, you don't think that you're actually going to have to roll up your sleeves and be an engineer and try to solve these things. We were concerned about digitizing only one track at a time. This was just not an option because I started doing some calculations and assuming that you could digitize, you know, for a good portion of the day, looking at, you know, maybe 30 tracks, uh, you know, probably 10,000 hours or so, it would probably take you over 100 to maybe 150, 170 years to digitize like the Apollo program. The entire Apollo the program. Apollo program. And I thought, well, um, we don't have 170 years. We're going to do this faster. So <laughs> Our grant's only for three years. Yeah, it's only for three years. So, so we, how, many, how many tapes are we talking about? So for uh, Apollo 11, my understanding, if I remember correctly, now it's been a number of years, I think it was about 22 or 24 tapes. And each tape had, well, not how much tape, but how many each minutes? Each tape has about 14 hours. And when you digitize, you must digitize in real time. So that means you literally play back the tape. It takes 14 hours to play it back. If you now have... On track one. On track one, yeah. So now you're going to have to take that same tape and literally play it back 14 hours. So basically, if you could digitize... 14 hours in a day, it would take you 29 days to digitize one tape. Because you don't want to digitize That's iRig. Right, right. Now, it's, and well, and the, also the thing that you have to worry about is once you digitize it, now you've got to go back and figure out how do you actually align all those tracks. Because if you could digitize them at the same time, well, now they're automatically aligned. If you digitize them one at a time, they're not necessarily going to be aligned. You'd have to find some thing that happened in each track in order to coordinate the playbacks. Yeah, actually would be the obvious solution that you would hey, I'm with. nothing but if not the master of the obvious. And one of the challenges also is that it's not just the fact that you're just playing back a magnetic tape. The issue is that over that 14 hours, you can kind of think the tape actually expands and contracts. So the playback is not necessarily exactly at the same rate. So when you when we digitize, you know... So we, that wouldn't work. Yeah, so what'll happen is that if you play this back, you know, 29 times, at the end, each one is going to be slightly longer or shorter than the rest. I'm thinking that you got a bigger problem than that. You got 50-year-old audio Ta tapes yeah. that you think are going to hold up to 30... 14-hour playbacks. Right. And it's quite common. Uh, I, I've done some work with audio archiving. We had an NSF project about 10 years earlier that was called the National Gallery of the Spoken Word. So we had spent uh, five years on that project, and it was looking at audio that had been captured from 1890s up into the 1995 or so. And so in those types of tapes, you literally have an oven, and it was one of the things I was actually <laughs> familiar with in, in the space that Greg Weissman was working in, um, where there's an oven. So if you have an analog tape, sometimes you have to bake the tape because there could be moisture or some other types of impurities, or maybe the tape might stick together. So baking it actually uh, hopefully allows the tape to uh, travel more smoothly through the playback system. So, confronted with the the option of 170 years worth of playback in order to digitize, you had to find another solution. Yeah, and so the thing we looked for is we wanted to come up with a way of maybe designing a new read head. Uh, it was a risk. We, we figured, well, what, how could we do this? So, uh, we we're pretty lucky because when we looked at the read head that uh, was actually sitting in SoundScriber, um, it had a manufacturer's name on that. So from that, I ended up, it was like CSI type <laughs> thing. I ended up investigating where I could go and try to find the manufacturer of that. 
And we kind of went through about four or five different paths. I ended up finding a, a company in New Jersey that actually specializes in customized uh, recording equipment. My name is John French, and uh, our company name is JRF Magnetic Sciences, Inc. And um, we, uh, we started this little company back uh, around 1979, and um, we started off just manufacturing uh, little components for tape recorders and also uh, refurbishing uh, the tape heads. And your business is still focused on on analog recording? Almost exclusively. Um, We service, let's see, uh, we service recording studios, both commercial big recording studios, and also uh, literally uh, small personal studios that musicians run and things like that. Uh, We do a lot of uh, service for archive facilities, Uh, One of our bigger customers is Library of Congress. Uh, We do a lot of work for, um, oh, colleges, uh, institutions that have large libraries that they are archiving, uh, film. That's that's in that end of things. Then uh, we do a lot of work with the government. Uh, We built some special machines for the FBI and the military and... um, uh, custom head assemblies for film. Uh, let's see, what else? It's quite a range of things oh. that you 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 got. Uh, you're, you're touching in a lot of different businesses. I know, and it's basically who we are. I mean, we're a very small company, but boy, we are busy. Tell me how you and your company became involved, or even aware of this deal with the Apollo mission control tapes in Houston. Well. That's it. it was interesting. Uh, we received a call from a student, uh, and I believe he was a student of John Hansen's uh, there at the University of Texas. And when he first called, he just told me that he was trying to uh, play back some channels on a 30-channel uh, um, uh, piece of recorded tape. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to need a little more than that. Uh, can you tell me, you know, what the machine is? What and so we went back and forth, and uh, I think it probably was three or four phone calls that I uh, finally found out that what he was really—he never did mention it in the beginning—but uh, he told me that he was working with uh, NASA on the Apollo tapes, which you know obviously piqued my interest uh, pretty significantly. The the tape that they were trying to deal with had 30 tracks of audio. Well, actually, one was for iRig. Right. And their problem was that they were trying to find a way to get it to play back more than one, or if not all, of those tracks simultaneously. Correct. Is that, is that an issue that, that made sense to you, that you got, ah, that's that's something I get my, my teeth into? Well... <laughs> So many projects, when we first start talking about them, scare the daylights out of me. (laughs) But, you know, because you have to consider that I don't have the machine, I have no way of testing anything, Uh, you know, projects usually don't have the budget that we can fly out to the facility and do testing and that kind of thing. So we are literally, we have to take the information that we get and then come up with whatever solution we can work out, uh, you know, to, to offer. Now, on this particular project, the initial discussion was that we were going to build a single-channel head, uh, you know, that could play back. Mm-hmm. Um, but they already had that. You know, I mean, that wasn't adding anything, uh, any kind of an improvement. So what I had suggested at that time was, you know, we're probably going to want to go with a 30-channel head. Uh, I did research on 
uh, other 30 channel systems and uh, as I recall I couldn't find any so the first the, the, the next problem was it wasn't going to be a standard head that we can pick off of uh, let's say a dictaphone or one of those other systems uh, because we're looking for 30 channels and uh, I worked very closely with a head manufacturer and uh, I had discussed this with uh, uh, John about making up a three channel head that uh, was going to be interlaced channels. See, a 30 channel head is on one inch is very, very difficult. Um, channels are very close together. Uh, shielding is, is a problem. Very, very seldom do you see a 30 channel head. What Normally it would be an interlaced with 15 channels on one head being all odd channels and 15 channels on the playback head, which would be all even channels. So that was our initial idea. And of course we had the one track head, but we didn't know what the center to center spacings were. Uh, there really wasn't any information that we could sink our teeth into that you know we could build a 30 channel head to. I mean, that again would be a very expensive uh, proposition. So what we did to start off with was we built a three-track head, which uh, I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it was channels 13, 15, and uh, 17, and um, built that, that uh, prototype head, sent it down to NASA, and they were able to hook it up. They were able to use it. They were able to play back three channels which you know was really a breakthrough so we had that part of it done next i went back to the manufacturer and i told them that the uh concept worked and that we were going to need two 15 channel heads because he refused to try and build a 30 channel head and uh spent about two weeks negotiating back and forth with him because there was another big expense involved with this, and that is the tooling. Uh, you, you need a mandrel with uh, 15 slots for the tracks and then 17 slots for the shields. And he said to put together a, a piece of tooling like that, it was many thousands of dollars. And I went back to John and told him that, uh, you know, that I, I really felt like this was going to be uh, a difficult thing to uh, you know to do for any kind of reasonable price and he said that uh, well you know get me the, the all the pricing and let's see where it falls so i went back to the manufacturer and told them that uh, that they wanted to know what the total cost was going to be and the head manufacturer said well on second thought i really don't want to build that head Oop. I said, what? He said, John, he said, it's just too much work. I, you know, there's, there's huge risk. What happens if one of these 15 channel heads fails in production? Uh, you know, I don't want to take the loss. I don't want, you know, so he basically bailed out on me. And I went back to John. I said, well, uh, we got a problem. <laughs> Houston, yeah. we have a problem. Right. And he, uh, he said, well, is there anything else you can come up with? And so I told him, well, I, I was going to do some research, and I would let him know. And we had worked with a company over in uh, Belgium that uh, manufactured heads for Dictaphone. It was uh, Applied Magnetics. And so uh, I went to Dictaphone first, and there wasn't anybody there that could give me any information on the track uh, placement, you know, the spacings and all that. But I went, uh, went to the people in uh, Belgium and I told them the situation. I told them that we needed either a, an interlaced 30-channel head or a 30-channel head all in one. And it just so happened that he said, well, John, he said, we built a 60-channel 
uh, with 30 channels on each head. They were interlaced. I said, well, what's the track format on that? And he gave me the, uh, sent me a drawing, actually. Yeah. And the the spacing on the, each channel, uh, center to center, was extremely close to what we had calculated out the uh, the NASA tapes to be. So, anyway, the cost on that head, uh, what happened was he said, well, you're not going to believe this, but we only have one 30-channel head in stock. It's the last one. We're not building anymore. And, um, you know, we only have one, so it uh, doesn't have its mate to make it a 60-channel. So we've been, you know, he told us they've been keeping it in case there was a system failure and, you know, they could support it. But it had been a number of years and the thing was still in stock. So they gave us a a very good price on it. I went back to John, explained what we had found. Of course, you know, everybody was really concerned that the tracking was going to be correct, that, uh, you know, the crosstalk and, you know, there were a bunch a number of conversations uh, regarding whether or not this head would actually work. Uh, so the long and the short of it is uh, we decided to bite the bullet and I ordered the head. Uh, the head came in. We made up a uh, mounting base for it. Uh, it actually came with cables and connectors and it was really a, a, a real fine to actually have as much uh, of the head that we needed, you know? Right. So, anyway, it came in. Uh, we uh, mounted it up. I set it up uh, alignment, you know, so that the azimuth and all was correct and wrap and everything. Uh, sent it down to them, and as I understand it, uh, it just worked beautifully. The new 30-track playback head, found and retrieved from a warehouse shelf in Belgium, did work beautifully. Just not right away. Hansen's team was up against another new problem in trying to integrate this piece of hardware into the Soundscriber. That's where we'll pick up next time. Yes, Virginia, there will be a next time. Next time, here at the same coordinates, nasa.gov slash podcasts, where you can also hear part one of this series and all of the other episodes of our podcast. And when you go there, please look around at the other cool NASA podcasts you can find, including Welcome to the Rocket Ranch from KSE, JPL's On a Mission podcast, NASA in Silicon Valley from the Ames Research Center. There's also Gravity Assist, The Invisible Network, Small Steps, Giant Leaps. They are all available right there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. The Heroes Behind the Heroes episodes of Houston We Have a Podcast are produced by Greg Wiseman and me, with editing and audio engineering by Greg, with help from Alex Perryman. Thanks to our guests, John Hansen, Greg Wiseman, Larry Vroman, and John French, and to Norm Moran and Gary Jordan for helping us pull it all together. See you next week.